I just love how <laughs> Facebook, uh, well, it, it's, it's, it's WhatsApp is using Twitter to communicate. I'm ready to talk about going into the lion's den. Well, welcome this evening to Andrew Harding. He's the BBC Africa correspondent. He's an author more recently um, of a book all about this really horrible microcosm of South African history. And we'll talk about that this evening. But Andrew Harding has spent most of his working life at the BBC. But before he joined them, I first would hear his voice when I would have to phone London to independent radio news late at night as a young reporter to be fed overnight voice pieces that had been sent from all over the world. And there was Andrew Harding in Moscow, sounding authoritative, knowledgeable, knowing every single facet of what was happening in this mysterious place and today he's doing that for audiences around the world based in Johannesburg as Africa correspondent and you've lived this expat life not just in Moscow and Tbilisi and Nairobi and Singapore and Bangkok and the last dozen years in Joburg but I think before that it was actually quite normal for you were your parents in the military or something Andrew that you had already traveled half the world by the time you started doing it for yourself Hi, Bruce. Uh, lovely to be on your show. And greetings, by the way, from Wells in Somerset. I'm outside a pub Ooh. that was made briefly <laughs> famous for being in that wonderful film Hot Fuzz. I don't know if you remember that one. I don't, um, I'm afraid. Anyway, th- this, this, this pub was uh, featured prominently in, in that film. Um, it was by the guys who made a, a wonderful zombie movie, Shaun of the Dead. Anyway, I, I digress. But, but in case there's some violent noises behind me, that's the British people celebrating whatever they are celebrating these days. Um, so I'm in Wales, I'm in Somerset. <laughs> and yes, I, my, my parents were not diplomats or military or anything so glamorous. My father was actually a, a scientist and um, studied plastics and chemicals and so moved to Belgium for the headquarters of an American chemical company, the European headquarters, when I was about six or seven. And that's how I ended up living abroad and going eventually to boarding school in the UK, as uh, as plenty of people do, and uh, it ends up shaping or scarring them for life. But uh, I was one of those people who was, who was sent off to, to boarding school at the age of eight. Um, I know how you feel about that. I was done, but mine wasn't quite as exciting as going to boarding school in England. I ended up in Bloemfontein, but that's another story altogether. Um, do your three sons have the same yearning to see the world? Have they been bitten by this expat bug that catches so many? I'm sort of still waiting to find out. I think actually, so far, their instinct is to go the opposite of whatever their dad has been doing. Um, And so right now they're all back at university in the UK and trying to kind of engage with a country that they've never really lived in and never really known that well, um, but which is, of course, their passport and which, of course, is going through its own sort of spectacular range of crises with the, the with Brexit of course and, and now with the pandemic and with this whole strange world of post-Brexit Britain um, so they are at university here and uh, I'm not sure where they will end up but I, I, I hope something uh, you know of the of the wanderlust might have rubbed off on them. Um, and I mean, you've got a you've got a, a wonderful world view by virtue of the fact that you've immersed yourself in various places um, as a foreign correspondent, and uh, in some cases, I'm sure a very chaotic existence because you could be dispatched anywhere at any time and at a moment's notice. 
Well, I was just thinking of you in that introduction talking about Moscow, because I went off there in 1991 with a rucksack with sort of vague, vague plans to try my hand as a foreign journalist um, with no real work. But I turned up in Moscow in 91 as the Soviet Union was collapsing and suddenly there were just opportunities galore. And these days I get a lot of messages and emails from people wanting to make their start in journalism and you know it, it is a, a fast changing and weird world to try and get involved in but you know it worked for me that idea you just launch yourself off into a a difficult strange but but sort of newsworthy part of the world and uh and just start you know reporting and see who will buy your your wares I, I didn't realize it was quite as courageous as that because it never sounded particularly terrifying um, other than what you were reporting on. And, of course, that was the end of Gorbachev and it was the rise of Yeltsin and it was tanks in Red Square and the, the shelling of the parliament buildings. I mean, it was a traumatic time. Well, it, that was all fascinating. But what re- my first war was the Chechen War, um, 95, 96. And mm. that was a complete baptism of fire. I mean, that was che- Chechnya was like Vietnam, Stalingrad, all rolled up. I mean, it was quite a spectacularly violent conflict. And we, you know, I lived it for a couple of years. And then I covered the second war as well. Um, so that was, you know, no conflict. And I've covered, I don't know, I stopped counting at about 20 something um but no conflict has ever come close to that and that was my first so um it really was quite extraordinary and how, how does that affect you i mean you know we, we hear the stories of the foreign correspondents particularly those who get addicted to war zones and uh, movies have been made of some of the characters who just have these most remarkable lives and they get obsessed and driven by this deep desire to try and fix the world and then almost have a meltdown when they realize they can't. Um, All you can really do is report the facts of what is happening and leave it up to others to sort out, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a a very messy business and you get to see awful stuff. And I think different people handle it in different ways. And, you know, I know a lot of friends and colleagues who've really, you know, it's changed their lives and many people find it very, very difficult to deal with. I've always taking comfort in a sense of purpose. You know, I do believe in what I'm doing and I do believe in the BBC. And I think, you know, you're going places and telling people's stories. And that feels like a very useful thing to do. Um, And I always, I guess, unload, as we journalists tend to do, um, on each other. Um, And that has always helped me. um, And obviously my family as well. But I guess you become more cautious and you realise that, you know, when I was covering wars in my youth, I took risks and it was a very different environment as well. You know, you didn't have all these safety advisors, all these courses. You just went and did stuff. And, you know, years later, you look back and go, I cannot believe (laughs) I I used to drive across the front lines delivering messages from the Russian to the Chechen troops waving a white flag and, you know, shells coming down on the road beside us. Um, um, You know, stuff that I just wouldn't even contemplate now. And I guess you, you do it out of a sense of purpose, but also a certain amount of naivety. And that's why, you know, there's always a, a, a worry that younger journalists getting into these situations, particularly as wars get more complicated and, and there are fewer front lines and so much more murkiness and so much more targeting of journalists that, you know, you worry about people now getting into this business um, and ending up in really big trouble. 
and and the instantaneous nature of news and the social networks and the way they work and the um, the ability of information to to travel the world far more quickly than it ever could uh, back in the time that you're talking about also brings an immediacy and perhaps a sense of bravado um, which in itself brings danger. Maybe, maybe the the the, the instantaneousness, as, as you say, perhaps. Um, although I think. Personally, I think I, I get more cautious, um, and I think I just think the world is getting more complicated, mm. and journalism is getting more complicated. And the, you know, the one's so much more aware now of, you know, I used to report, and I, I used to report for the BBC World Service, so I knew I had a global audience, but I wasn't necessarily expecting people in the country I was reporting on to be listening and reading and critiquing and now of course that's very much part of the game and 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 i think it's a good thing and i think it keeps us on our toes and honest as journalists um but it also makes it very risky i mean i remember driving around cote d'ivoire during the civil war there and being so relieved that i was not working for the french media because all the rebels were listening all the troops were listening to the french media to rfi and people, journalists I knew, were getting pulled out of their cars and nearly killed because they were seen as partisan, whereas actually there no one cared about the BBC. So you are marked by the, the company you work for and the language and the politics that have nothing to do with you really individually. Um, and it can be a matter of life or death. Is it as much fun as it used to be? I was listening to a podcast with the great John Simpson the other day, and he was just saying in the olden days he'd get the whiff of a story, or maybe it wasn't a story. He'd jump on a plane, he'd arrive if there was a story he'd covered. If there wasn't, he'd move on to the next whim. And now he says, oh, it's all accountants and budgets, and, you know, the story's almost over by the time it sort of gets approved by a committee that's sort of, uh, sort of somewhere in the bowels of the BBC before, yeah, it takes ages for stories to be okayed is it still as much fun as it used to be yeah i i don't recognize uh, simpson's world um uh i think uh generally actually you know if you're you know if you're there on the front lines as a correspondent in your patch um you know you go where you need to go and you can still get there pretty fast and what i love about this job um Almost to a fault. Um, and, and in fact, it's been very interesting during lockdown with the way journalism has changed, because, of course, these days you're not expected to be everywhere. You, you're expected to do your work online on Zoom calls, whereas yeah. I still come from a, a generation or more than a generation, many generations of journalists where particularly in TV, particularly in radio, you just had to be there. So the logistics are everything. If you're not in the right city, when the war starts, you're in the wrong place and nothing will get around that fact. Whereas these days, you can get around that fact. And I, I sort of regret that because my instinct is still that if you're not in the right place, on the ground, away from a, a, a computer and, and doing honest, proper walking around, meeting people, journalism, you're not really doing your job. But I, that, that increasingly is, is sort of an old-fashioned view. But you would never 
you would never in a billion years of Zoom calls have ever got the story that you got in These Are Not Gentle People, um, the story about Parace and the Free State and murder and court cases and have gained the trust of families on all sides of that particular tale. Had you tried to go, hello, could I have a Zoom call? I'm going to put it into your diary for Thursday next week at 12.30 and then we'll have a really deep and meaningful and, in, uh, and intimate chat. You simply wouldn't have got that story, would you? That, that's very true. And I mean, also, it's, it's that, but it's also time. Um, and time is so precious. And it's such a rare commodity these days with social media, with the, what you were mentioning about the crazy world, the way journalism has changed. But um, a book is a, such a different project. And it does afford you that luxury to just go and wait. Uh, you pick your story and then you wait. And you wait for people to get used to you being this wallfly. Um, and it's a it's a it's a wonderful thing in the way in the same way I love doing those sort of long two hour interviews where you know people have got to get stuff off your chest that you're never going to use that you don't care about but you you need them to get that off their chest in order to get to the interesting stuff and so often in in journalism particularly in TV journalism where you're you're always in such a hurry you're 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 listening out for the soundbite and you're not sitting and waiting <laughs> for people to gain your trust mm -hmm. so i I've, I've loved being able to have the opportunity you know to take a little bit bit of time away from the day job and and try a very different form of of journalism and writing uh, and very sort of Truman Capote, if you like. I mean, it, it's just the sense of getting really immersed in the story and learning the characters and the people. And um, it, it's a very particular form of journalism in in terms of the, the narrative journalism of telling the story. A much global appetite for that story. It's so local. It's so parochial. It's so specific, yet so symbolic of a country that is still so deeply traumatized by its past, present and the fear of the future. Yeah, I mean, it's published in the UK. There's a paperback out. Um, and I'm hoping, you know, that, that it'll go other places in other media. Um, but so on one level, clearly, South Africa is not as interesting to the rest of the world as it used to be. The days of Mandela, the days of incipient civil war, all those dramas are over. And now it is just a, a struggling country, uh, one of many. And it's a long way from all the issues and all the, 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 the flashpoints that really preoccupy the West, um, if that's what you're interested in. Um, so, you know, I was just thinking today about COVID and, you know, why is South Africa still on the red list? Well, it's still on the red list because it's got no, with Britain, because it's got no leverage. Um, I think it's as crude as that, you know, it's, it's not mm. front and center. Um, uh, that, that's not to say that Africa isn't front and centre. I mean, I think Africa has all sorts of you know, incredibly important issues for itself and for the rest of the world. And obviously, I come with a, a British slant, which most people don't. Um, but a British slant that is looking out for things that will affect us, good and bad, markets, opportunities, conflicts, problems. Um, and I think in that sense, it will always be very much part of our world. But... But it's funny as a foreign correspondent to try and work out, you know, is there interest in your part of the world? Um, 
And sometimes it's a very good thing if, if there isn't interest because it means nothing bad is going on. Yeah, but then your, your time is limited and you won't be there very long. The fact that you've been in South Africa for a dozen years is, is quite an extraordinarily, extraordinarily long period, is it not, for a foreign correspondent to be sort of immersed in, in a country? It is. It's a fluke. I mean, I was four years in Moscow, two years in Georgia in the Caucasus, another four years in Moscow. Then I was four years in Nairobi, four years in Asia as Asia correspondent. I came to Moscow thinking, well, four years here and then we'll see. Um, But a a confluence of things, you know, just chance. A foreign editor moves on and his replacement goes, well, maybe we don't need to move people on every four years. Maybe it's better that people stay. You know, I had kids growing up here, family here. And you start to get roots and you realize that actually maybe this brisk nomadic lifestyle isn't quite so suitable for a, for a growing family. And, um, and you get to love the place you're staying in with all its sort of quirks and glories and flaws. Um, and so here we are. And I'm not sure how much longer I'll be in South Africa, but, but it's, it's been a, a wonderful experience. Is the life of a of a foreign correspondent all champagne, uh, soirees at embassies, of course, yes. nothing and, bad. Nothing bad. Uh, and 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 long? I mean, flowing ball gowns and tuxedos, James Bond style. I mean, is it is it a glamorous lifestyle, or is it just bloody hard work journalism on a budget? Um, there's very, very, very little glamour in this business. Um, I think if you go back to your home country and you're a presenter or in the reward ceremonies, um, you know, there's a hint once in a blue moon. But, but journalism is, you know, if you're in it for the glamour or you're in it for the money, you're in it for the wrong reason and you're bound to be disappointed. Actually, um, you know, w- w- I think by and large, we are a very sort of driven community and a really close-knit community of people who think what we do matters and it is a vocation in that sense even if people don't necessarily join it as a vocation it's not like being a doctor or whatever Uh, but but you very quickly get caught up in that sense of purpose and of telling you know people's stories and of of holding them those stories precious to you and so you forego some of the of the of the home comforts and you actually you know you spend a lot of your time calculating the risks um and it teaches you a lot about about yourself about what you know are you going to drive down that road are you going to cross that frontier are you going to go somewhere where you know the chances of death are always pretty slim let's be honest but they're there and if you enter certain areas they go up quite dramatically and are you going to keep going back and um are you going to put that on the line? And particularly when you start getting kids and getting older, these risks and these um, these equations that you have to make start getting harder and harder. Yeah. I mean, so you're good at risk management um, in the real world. You can face down a, a Chechen rebel. You can face down a Russian soldier armed to the teeth. Um, so you've done that yeah. in your time. Um, could you could you face down an asset manager who was underperforming on your pension, I wonder? Oh, God, no. I, I, I am... You've probably got the wrong guest on, I'm afraid, Bruce. No, the, I, the wrong I'm guests not, are the best I, guests when it comes to talking I, about money because I, here you are, taking risk every day, and investment's about risk. Uh, yeah, I, I, um, I am 
Well, probably, as you can imagine, as a slightly woolly liberal uh, working for a public broadcaster, I am more interested in um, in the right sort of investment, if any, if I have any money to invest, than than cash. I, I'm 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 not. I mean, I guess I'm, it's a luxury, and I'm very aware of that, and a luxury not to be very interested in money. So I don't say that lightly, but I've chosen a, a career path that is not about. Um, you know, you work for a, a state or public broadcaster, you're not in it uh, to make a large amount of money. Although the, the truth is, of course, if you end up living abroad, um, you know, with a big company like the BBC behind you, which is, a, you know, a good employer in many ways, um, you do get certain things looked after. And of course, the pound, when you're earning it oh. uh, and living somewhere like South Africa or in Russia in the in the 90s, you know, a pound goes, still goes uh even today, a, a, a fair, fair, fair way. So, yeah. It has its advantages. It has its advantages. It does, do foreign yeah, correspondents ever does. retire, I wonder? Because I look at John Simpson at 76 or 78 or 708, I forget how old he is, um, and he still wants to get out there and, uh, and work. Do you think you'll be doing it in your 70s? Look, I, I kind of hope so. I've never been drawn... I mean, I've been very lucky for the first thing. I mean, so many people... It is a process of attrition or at least, uh, you know, an acceptance of family duty. You know, a lot of people have parents who may need support or help. They have family and young children who need schooling and people end up returning to their home bases and um, swapping the kind of the life on the road for something a bit more sensible and often a bit duller, and sometimes that's presenting something. I don't think, uh, with huge respect to you, Bruce, I, I don't know that I could do it. I don't think I can think of more than one thing and at the same time and talk as well. So I, it's a particular skill I don't really have. Um, so I, I'm kind of, I, I love this job, and I love this world, and I, I have, I suppose, branched out with some writing and some longer-form projects and i love that as well and i suppose at some point i will start to wonder whether i want to take as ri the risks that i'm still sort of prepared to take um even though that equation does change um but i've been incredibly lucky to have uh, a family that has gone along with this and, a, and an organization behind me that has kind of supported me in this and made it work for 30 years now which is um I'm not sure it's a record, but certainly there aren't many of us out here who, who've managed to kind of keep on the road. And what worries me, of course, is that journalism is changing so fast and, and the money is seeping out of yeah. the organizations that allow people to do this kind of job. And the expertise, or call it what you like, the experience that I have um, that the BBC still values is kind of becoming less and less important. And it means that I think you'll have fewer and fewer people who can make a life. Yeah. It's, no, it's not less and less important. It's more and more important. It's just less and less appreciated, I think, well, on, on that I particular mean, I point. Think, yeah. I think, you know, you get, a, you get a particular argument these days, which I, you know, I, I respect and I agree with to some extent, which is particularly in Africa. Africans need to tell African stories. They need to tell the stories of their own country. And the BBC is brilliant at that. We have hundreds of journalists yeah. across Africa telling African stories to Africans. We are the sort of virtual national broadcaster for right or for wrong in countries that don't have that. And I think we, you know, it's a useful role for, while it's, worth, you know, while, while it's needed, it's useful. Um, yeah. But, but, but we, I, I we just must, believe we, that we, we need yeah. to tell, you know, foreigners need to tell, you, you know, you need to send foreigners to, 
to different countries. Africans, South Africans need to go to America to understand America for South Africa. You can't just rely on Americans no. to tell you what's going on. You know, you, you do need to have that exchange and that outside voice and that Andrew sort Harding, of skeptical I, pair, of, pair of eyes. We must leave it there. Sadly, I wish we could carry on. But you've got to go back to the pub. Which pub is it? I've got all the pubs of, and bars of Wells in Somerset open in front of me. Which one is it? It's called, hang on, it's called The Crown. The and Crown, of course. It's, oh, there it is. It's lovely. And the film is called? Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz. By the man who made Shaun of the Dead and World's End. And <laughs> You've just Edgar ruined the Wright. pub. You've ruined the pub. Uh, but the pub looks lovely. Yeah. Um, please, will you go and have a pint in the pub uh, and enjoy your evening. And thank you so much for taking time out of the pub for us. Andrew Hardick, BBC Africa correspondent. Other people's money.